Galatians chapter 2. Here's what God's word says to us tonight. Having explained from verse 11 uh, through to 24, Paul's saying this gospel is not man-made. It's received by revelation from God. He gives an account of the fact that he's not been discipled in this, taught in this by any of the Jerusalem apostles. He goes on to continue his story and bring us to the crux of Galatians, the key issue in this book that will take up our attention for a good number of weeks. Chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, that is after his conversion, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, 
I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. This is God's word. Well, you see what's at stake here in Galatians chapter 2. It's really, as I mentioned before, the Bible reading there, it is the very crux of the whole book. Uh, it will be expounded, opened up for us all the more in the coming weeks as we get into chapter 3 and 4 in particular. But if you see in verse 5, look with me, we do not give in to them for a moment so that, what's the subject? What's there? The truth of the gospel, okay, that which has been revealed to Paul by God that we saw in chapter 1. And then over in verse 14, as Paul even opposes Peter, what's at stake here again? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So the truth of the gospel is what's at stake here. A gospel that we that is no gospel at all, a, 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 a news, if you like, that deviates from the truth of the gospel has no power to save. It is no gospel at all. It is futile. And we must watch ourselves. The question that Galatians 2 throws up for us, and as I say, will be dealt with in the coming weeks, is how can a person be made right with God? It's the hot topic, if you like, in the Galatian churches. How can a person be made right with God? And I wonder how you would answer that question. If someone asked you, how can I be made right with God? What would you say? I think most non-Christians, so those who don't believe the gospel yet, respond often with a list of do's and don'ts. Well, you, you mustn't do this or you must do this but some Christians have a tendency to respond in that way as well that it's a list of do's and don'ts so if I go to church and I'm kind to people God will see my good works and God will accept me or if I read the Bible and see what God says is true and just do that then that's how I'm going to get on a right standing with God see how it comes down to a list of do's and don'ts Take a wee test to see how we get on with that. On screen is the white bit. There is a picture of a wall. Let's say it's 30 foot high. The blue ladder represents the kind of life that we need to live in order to please God. And the Bible makes it clear that that standard of holiness is 100% holy. 100% perfect. Completely without sin. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord as Hebrews 12 says so do we meet that standard as we try to live good lives are we 100% perfect I'm sure you'll agree you're not we've told lies we've been angry at people haven't we it's quite plain to see even what Psalm 143 said that we face judgment as it says in chapter 2 David's fear is do not bring your servant into judgment for 
No one, he says. No one is righteous before you. So no one naturally has what it takes to live a life that pleases God, to reach that 100% mark, the top of the ladder to the top of the wall. We don't do it. It's truer to say that our lives look more like the ladders either side of that blue ladder. They fall short. Actually, those ladders are a little bit generous. I'm saying that not because I know you, but just as a general statement, of course. Uh, And the, the, the key thing that Galatians 2 is pointing out to us tonight is that you're not made right with God. The word they use is justification. To be declared righteous. Or if you like... To be justified in the sense of that illustration would be to have your ladders brought up to the line, brought up to the top of the wall, okay? You're not justified by your own works. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's truly about faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to look at tonight. That's the truth of the gospel that Paul is talking about as a subject in verse 5 and in verse 14. And it's Paul's concern that this sticks with the Galatians. He wants them to get it. Indeed, it's Martin Luther and his commentary on Galatians that said it is absolutely essential for everyone in the church to get this. He said this is so fundamental to all Christian doctrine, we must beat it into their heads continually. So true. It's an important, important doctrine. Without it, everything falls apart. So first thing we're looking at tonight is that you are not saved by good works. And I think we see that quite plainly in verses 1 to 10. The problem that you've got here as Paul brings himself up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles is that there are false teachers who are propagating and teaching a false gospel that is threatening to undo Paul's gospel. So Paul has been preaching the plain truth that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by observing law, not by doing good works. You read about these guys in Acts chapter, chapter 15 and verse 1. They say to people openly, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Sounds very different to Jesus in John 3, doesn't it? Unless a man is born again, he cannot be saved. Well, Paul deals with this issue by going up to Jerusalem. Not because he's summoned by any celebrity apostles. He goes at a revelation, verse 2 tells us, by a revelation of God. So it's God's will for him to go up. Verse 3 tells us that he's going up for fear that he had been, uh, had been running or had run his race in vain. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand that. I don't think Paul has any doubts about his gospel. We've already seen in chapter 1 that he's received this gospel by a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his concern is that these false brothers, brothers, he's calling them, we see, as you'll see later on in Acts chapter 15, we'll revisit that in a couple of weeks' time, these guys are not from James, as they claim, they are not true brothers. His fear, Paul's fear, is that these guys are just undoing his work, following him into every city, infiltrating every church that he has planted, sneaking in. And he's, they're trying to, as Paul describes in verse 4, 
They're spying on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to make us slaves. That's what Paul thinks about their work. They're trying to put us back in manacles, in handcuffs, in chains. Now this time, interestingly, when Paul goes up, he takes with him Barnabas, who is, who is a Jewish believer. And Barnabas was on Paul's first missionary trip, going around different cities proclaiming the gospel, okay? So he was a believer who had been a Jew, and he was therefore circumcised. And he also takes with him Titus, who is a Gentile, a non-Jew, which means he would not have been circumcised. If anything, these false teachers in Galatia, Galatia were encouraging them to adopt. So in any sense, in some sense, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a test case. I'm going to take my Jewish friend who has been circumcised and my non-Jewish brother who has not been circumcised and let's just see what happens when we go up to Jerusalem. So Paul goes up, presents these guys as his brothers equally, presents his gospel, lays it before them like some kind of blueprint on a light box. And what do they do? It's almost, you get the impression that Peter and the other apostles are taking the gospel that they are preaching and they place it on the light box. And what do they see? To the very millimeter they match, snap. Wonderful. That's cleared up a lot. They're preaching the same gospel. Paul is able to say quite clearly in verse 6, as for those who seem to be important, these men added nothing to my message. So it's not, the claim was from these Galatian false teachers was that Paul's gospel might have been all right, but it's mildly deficient. There's nothing about observing the law. There's nothing about circumcision. There's nothing about who you can and can't eat with. But Paul's saying, the gospel I preached, they added nothing. It's the same gospel, same gospel. And what Paul is communicating here, quite simply, is just, is just by his testimony of what happened in Jerusalem, saying to the Galatians, encouraging them, let this stick with you. Don't believe these false teachers. You're not saved by works. You're not saved and justified by the things that you do. That's not how you get right with God. If good works were able to save us or were necessary, Paul's gospel would not have aligned with the apostles in Jerusalem. He would have been out of sync, as these false teachers were claiming, but he wasn't. And if good works, well, he, uh, yeah, Peter, the, the text tells us in verse 9 that they gave Paul that right hand of fellowship on confirmation that the gospel were the same. I suppose it's like the New Testament equivalent of a high five or a man hug or something like that. You know, it's, they, they, are, they are in complete agreement. It's like, hey, you're my brother, you know. They weren't objecting, objecting to one another's news that they were sharing. So he presents this gospel, it matches, delightful. He presents these brothers, a Jew and a Gentile, and the Gentile, the Gentile one is not restricted from coming. The Gentile one is not told, whoa, 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 you can't come in here until you need to get circumcised. You need to follow these certain laws. Paul's quite clearly just saying that this didn't need to happen. Titus didn't even feel compelled, which means he could have if he had wanted to. I don't know why he'd want to, but he... He is just quite simply saying, he didn't even feel compelled. He didn't even think it was valuable. Never mind necessary. You are not saved by your good works. And the result of these verses, 1 to 10, is that the truth of the gospel was confirmed 
It is the same gospel, a gospel that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we need to remember this. We need to let that stick with us. Because just as there were false teachers who were coming into Galatia to try and pluck bits out of Paul's gospel or add bits onto Paul's gospel, so the very same is happening today in various ways. There are people who would just extract some elements. Oh, hell, it's a little bit contentious. It's not, doesn't make the gospel easy to swallow. Let's dispatch that. There are those who say, okay, give us the gospel. There's one particular writer I read this week who was asked to tweet the gospel. So on Twitter, you get 150 characters to say what you want to say. Press enter. That's all you get. So they invited him. And 150 characters tell us the gospel. And it was devastatingly woeful to be blunt. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 gives you the proper tweeting of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. But this, this one, I wish I had it in front of me, was just something like, yeah, you know, the message that we have is just that the tomb is empty and that all those little slivers of things that you find going on in your life, you might just find that in God, these things all link together into something really big. What? What are you saying? That's English. And I don't even understand it. It makes me angry when we have such a gospel that saves that people would seek to extract something from it or add something to it thinking they're doing God a favor. It's so sad. And people are duped into thinking that social action is all you need. You just need to love people. Just tell them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Oh yeah, but tell them about sin. That's why the ladders are short. We are not saved by good works. The truth of the gospel is confirmed by Paul as he visits these apostles. They add nothing to his message. They don't require anything of everybody else. They are brothers. They are preaching the same gospel. Even there's like, great, you're, at the, you're going for the Gentiles. We're going for the Jews. What a perfect match. Let's pray for each other. That's what they're doing. And all of this serves just to highlight for us and emphasize what Paul goes on to say, even by looking at an error next. You're not saved by works. Secondly, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Here's where we see this in verses 15 to 21. We have the situation where Peter is conducting himself in a way that is not in line with the truth of the gospel. It's like military language. He is not marching in time. He's not heading in the right direction. He's on a trajectory somewhere else by what he has done. Here's what happened. Peter visits Antioch. It's the southeastern corner of the province of Galatia. He had enjoyed for a time eating with the Gentiles, enjoying fellowship and companionship with the Gentiles, sharing the same food at the same table freely. But when some Jews arrived from Jerusalem, they actually claimed to be from James, as Paul accounts here, but they weren't, as it says in Acts 15. They were saying it was sinful for Jews, even Jewish Christians, to eat with Gentile sinners. So Peter, for some reason, withdrew and only ate with Jewish Christians. 
And so Peter, as a man of influence, sadly drew into his error a bunch of Jewish Christians in the church, even Barnabas, one of the church leaders and a close companion of Paul. And no doubt this made the non-Jewish Christians feel like second-class citizens in the church, even even to the point of making them feel the need to observe Jewish laws in order to really feel like part of the people of God. So they needed something else in order to be truly part of the people of God. And Paul sees in this a huge error. And he doesn't hold back. There are no more high fives, no man hugs in this. Paul is opposing Peter face to face in order to point out his hypocrisy. And don't miss this. We have two of the, uh, you know, I'm not talking about Christian celebrityism or anything like that. But, you know, we have two of the most prominent Christian men in all of history in our pages here. Can you imagine what it is for them to oppose one another and for them to have an argument? I mean, let's think about this. David Cameron and Barack Obama this past week, you know, they've been walking around pretty much hand in hand. You know, <laughs> you know what a special relationship we have as our nations. Actually, what a special relationship we have as boys. We fly on Air, Air Force One together, all those kind of things. You know, uh, that we've seen they've been acting like best buddies, special relationship. They share the same values. You keep hearing this come out. But imagine at an open news conference, you know how they have their little pulpits? And uh, imagine David Cameron turned around at one point and just said, well, this economic downturn has really proven to be quite difficult for us. I think, we, I think we're maybe a little, a little bit hasty in abolishing slavery. Let's, I mean, it might help boost the economy. It'll get people into work. That, you know. Now, what's Barack Obama going to think about that? It's not going to be a happy chappy. In fact, and since it was uttered in public, if you like, do you think Barack Obama is going to keep quiet on that? Do you think that affects the relationship? Do you think it affects the kind of message that these guys are trying to communicate as to what they appreciate as being valuable to them and to their respective nations? You can bet your bottom dollar that Barack Obama is going to say something. It's the same here with Paul. Now, Peter isn't quite denying the gospel in his teaching. He's denying the gospel in his conduct, okay? He's not practicing what he preaches. Paul calls it hypocrisy. And that's why Paul opposes Peter to his face. And it's quite a thing to see. It's quite a thing that the gospel, the truth of the gospel is at stake, as verse 14 told us. So it's a matter of considerable importance. But the question that I had in my mind, certainly as I looked at this, is why does Peter do this? Surely he's not forgotten just what they've confirmed previously in verses 1 to 10. They've just confirmed that their gospels are the same. You don't need to add things. Well, and certainly I don't think Peter's forgotten his vision from Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, you have this vision that Peter has, where he's on top of someone's house, uh, on top of the rooftop. And uh, he has a vision as he's praying of God lowering down this sheet before him with all sorts of different animals on it that were considered to be unclean in Jewish eyes. And the Lord says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter, three times, there's a pattern there, says, oh, surely not, Lord. He has a foot-shaped mouth, you understand. You know, surely not, Lord. You know, there's bacon and you know, all sorts of things that, that Jews were not allowed to eat. And Peter sees this 
despite his initial objection, hears the Lord say to him, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. So it can't be that Peter's eating with them because he's convinced of their argument. He's seen this sheet descend like a heavenly tablecloth, saying, enjoy. It seems more likely, though, the text indicates it, doesn't it, that it was out of fear. He was afraid of the circumcision group, as it says in verse 12. He was afraid. I don't think he was afraid of what they would think of him. I think this was a pragmatic thing, a practical response. That he worried this circumcision group, who were from James, weren't really from James, were actually the people who were practicing the kind of persecution that Paul had practiced before. And so Peter's removal of himself from the the church in Galatia, or certainly separating himself off from half of them, to eat with these men of the circumcision group and eat only with Gentiles was a pragmatic thing to try and, maybe to try and stop or lessen some of the persecution or give them less reason to persecute the Christians back in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, Paul despite if there were good intentions there, Paul still points out the inconsistency for Peter and the error that is leading other people into sin because of what, because Paul points it out, says, you're a Jew by birth and you live like a non-Jew, okay? You're, you're a Christian, you don't have those, those kind of commitments now. How come then you're making those who are not Jews, the Gentiles, think that they need to follow Jewish customs? And out of a a deep concern for the life of the church and the truth of the gospel, Paul opposes Peter. And what did Paul say about anyone who preached that different gospel? Remember in chapter 1, let him be eternally condemned. If someone is distorting it, even unwittingly, we need to make it known. So by Peter's conduct, he was adding to the gospel as if he was saying, you do need to be saved by works. Faith in Jesus Christ isn't quite enough, you need to make sure you're following some dietary laws. But that's not true, because God saves Jews and non-Jews in the same terms. It's what Paul goes on to say in verse 15. We who are Jews, look at this with me, read it. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's the heart of Galatians right there. A man is not justified by observing the law, that is good works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And just in case we missed it, he says it another he says it again twice in slightly different ways. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. Is that clear? <laughs> not by the law. You're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ justified by faith in Jesus Christ counted righteous before God not by anything that you have done or by anything that you will do whether it's a a standard of life a measurement that you seek to attain only by faith in Jesus Christ. The only way that we can reach that standard of perfection 
is to be justified by God's own generous, gracious gift, by his own initiative. He has to give it to us through Jesus Christ, his son. For all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, it is as if his righteousness is counted as ours by God. You see, what the gospel does is that it absolutely takes the legs away from and obliterates every one of our white ladders here. And he gives us Christ's ladder. Because Jesus has finished that work. He has fulfilled the law perfectly. And by simply believing in him, we are given a way to be made right with God. It is that simple. It is that simple. And it is that incredible. On the cross, Jesus effectively swapped place with sinners. Treated as if he was us and punished for our sins. And that's one side of it. The other side is that we are then treated as if we were Christ. Let's have a look at this on screen. I'd like to illustrate this for you in the most simple way that I can. This is who we are and this is who Jesus Christ is. We are, if you like, stained by sin. That's the blue, okay? And Jesus Christ himself is the righteous one. Perfect, sinless in every respect. And as Jesus died on the cross, he swapped places, if you like. He took our sin upon himself and made away with it. So that if we believe in him, here's what happens. He takes our sin upon himself and does away with it rightly. So that the justice of God is not compromised. Sin is not just given up. Oh, let's just forget about that sin that was committed. No, that would make God unjust. And he cannot be unjust because justice is part of his holy perfection, his very character. No, he punishes sin in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Punishes his own son who bore the father's wrath, that just judgment and penalty for sin. And quite simply, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that his death on the cross was sufficient to atone for our sins, to make us right with God we God looks on us as if we had never sinned <laughs> Jesus was treated as if he was me and punished as if he were all the sinners in the world so that I could be treated like him accepted and justified before God declared righteous and it's a free gift (laughs) received by faith in other words we must believe it Paul answers a couple of big concerns in relation to this justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ 
in verse 17, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does this mean that Christ promotes sin? This is the problem of licentiousness. It's the, the it's licentiousness that says, oh wow, I've been forgiven just by faith in Jesus Christ, therefore I don't really need to worry about being good. And the main objection kind of says, well, I, if, if we know we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, but carry on sinning then, does that mean that, that Christ doesn't really care about our sinfulness? Well, not at all. That's an abuse of grace. And that is not a faithful response to it. No, we are not forgiven so that we can think, well, I can career on into this. I can do this, this, and this. These sinful things, knowing that, well, God's got himself caught up in this, hasn't he? He has to forgive me when I confess my sin in Jesus' name. That's a dangerous, dangerous tact. To abuse the grace of Christ. Worse than that, in some sense, as we see in verse 17, the question, if we're justified by faith alone, does that mean Christ promotes sin? Well, Paul goes on to say that he, that, that we deal with our sin by keeping in step with the Spirit of God, letting him rule our lives through his word as we go into Galatians 5 and 6. But for now, he just says, absolutely not. This free gift of God, that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, is not a permit to sin. That's one of the objections that people offer. The other objection is legalism. Well, there must be something I can do to pay him back. There must be something else that I can do that just puts me in a good light. And I think this is what's making people return to observance of the law. That's the problem that we're seeing in in the Galatian churches. But Paul says in verse 18, If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. I prove that I am a lawbreaker. In other words, Paul is saying you, if you want to add to this justification by faith, if you want to add works to it, you're only returning to A, the thing that cannot save you, and B, the thing you cannot keep anyway. (laughs) So what's the point in that? You see, the law was a good thing given by God after the promise of faith, of course. We'll get to that next, next time. But the law was given as something of a, I've heard it pictured like this, that the law is something of a train, a locomotive engine at the front of a train that's pulling you along the track to Jesus Christ. But the problem is we remove the locomotive and we pick this train track up and we stick it on a wall and pretend it's a ladder. And with every rung of obedience, we try and climb that ladder and find our way up to God and it's futile. It's a ladder to nowhere. It is only by faith in Christ Even our best efforts are merely 15-foot ladders and 30-foot walls. It's pointless. All our righteousness, our righteous works truly are like filthy rags, as Isaiah tells us. So don't return to the law. Don't try and add anything to the gospel, thinking that it will put you in a better light before God. You're only returning to the thing that cannot save you and you cannot keep. Indeed, Paul says here, which you'll pick up again in chapter uh, 4, that you return, you, to return to the law and add things to the gospel, thinking, I must keep this, I must keep this, or else God will not love me, or else God will not save me, then you are putting yourselves back in the chains of an unbeliever. 
There is nothing you can do. Quite simply, here's how this goes. To be acceptable in God's sight, to be justified, so brought up to the the line, the height of the wall, you must be sin-free. You must be 100% perfect. The problem is, you are so sinful that you cannot live a sinless life. You cannot attain that 100% mark. And in fact, you do not deserve justification before God, but a righteous judgment of wrath and punishment. But here's the thing. Christ Jesus lived a sinless life that would qualify him to be our substitute. That he would rightly die on the cross and take our punishment upon himself. And therefore, through faith in him, we can be justified. He obliterates our ladders and God gives us Christ. It is through Christ, through believing in him, climbing his ladder, the blue one, that we truly are saved and justified. So Paul says in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's incredible. What Paul is telling us there is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we died too. Okay? It's the transference of that sin again. When Christ died on the cross, we died too. Our sin. And when Christ rose from the dead, declaring, as I live, you also shall live. When we put our faith and trust in him, we live by that same faith. So that justification by faith is not just that entry point into the Christian life. Wow, it's not like Jesus says on the cross, I've done my bit, now do yours. No, he says it is, what's the word? Finished. (laughs) Finished. Finish the work. You have nothing to add. It's not a license for sin. It's the very thing that enables you to live for him. A life in Christ. Where even your failures, even your sin, even when you fall flat on your face or hard on your face in terms of sin, you're free in Christ. Because you're banking everything on him, not on your own good works. How can a person be made right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in him? Have you seen yourself to be crucified with Christ on that cross? Oh, I'm such a bad sinner. There's no way that he could possibly love me. Is your sin greater than Christ's grace? not so freely come to him and if you're a Christian are you crushed by the weight of your sinfulness before him guilt is good and you should feel conviction but do not be enslaved to thinking that you need to try harder and be shackled again in the chains of unbelief believe Live for Christ by the same faith that has won you to him. 
by which he is that he has given you himself to believe in him <laughs> and do not return to the law to any additions for in doing so you nullify the grace of God do not count Christ's finished work as nothing that's what Paul's saying in verse 21 I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness righteousness could be gained through the law Christ died for nothing praise God as Paul will go on to show us in weeks ahead Christ didn't die for nothing he died for all who would put their faith and trust in him that we might die to sin and live for Christ to see our sins truly paid for to see all of our worthless efforts obliterated, cleared out the way and to show us the way to be made right with God justification by faith in Christ alone my encouragement for you tonight if you are not a believer is to confess your sin before him repent and believe the good news that's good news tonight that you don't need to try harder you need to believe in Jesus repent turn from your sin to God believing that's the faith that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin and you will be born again to a new life an eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord let's pray together